Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and we're doing a live show tonight, which I I always love when we've got a a guest live on the air and everybody out there listening as it is happening. My guest tonight is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the publishing industry. She is the former publisher of Writer's Digest, and she has been teaching writers uh, everything about the writing and publishing industry for more than 15 years. So I would like to welcome Jane Friedman. Jane, thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Shannon. So uh, I I read your book, Publishing 101, and it is absolutely, I mean, this would be a first-time author's Bible. It's got pretty much every bit of advice that you could give to an author, including not to follow anybody's advice necessarily, which I thought was perfect. <laughs> you started with that. So right. what, uh, what inspired you to, to put this all down in a book? Well, I had been blogging on writing and publishing since 2008, and a lot of people had not been reading me from the beginning, of course. And after about seven years of blogging on various topics, I decided it was time to take the best of what I had done and stitch it into something that was a beginning to end comprehensive guide that was very digestible rather than having to jump around a hundred different blog posts. That's awesome. And, and I know that you also, you are a, you're a professor at the university of Virginia and you do, you teach online courses. So what do you, do you teach uh, at the university? Uh, I focus on very much the same things that I do on my blog and that I that I have been talking about for the last 15 years. So I teach a class related to publishing and writing. Uh, it's particularly for students who are interested in entering a career, not particularly in publishing, but in the media more broadly. And of course, digital issues and the digital transformation of media is top of mind for most students entering the workforce. Most definitely, and 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 the the publishing industry and the media landscape is changing, with with every passing day, with every new social media platform, mm-hmm. and 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 all of the the old school, uh, just you know, straight up brick and mortar buildings with newspapers inside, uh, they're mm-hmm. they're quickly disappearing. So 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 your book, Publishing One Hundred and One, um, a lot of it, speaking of the changing landscape, talks about what authors need to do online as far as as, as building a platform. So if you could describe to our listeners for a second, what exactly is a platform? A great question, because there's so much confusion around the topic of platform. Everyone defines it a little bit differently. But if I had to boil it down to its essence, a platform is being visible to your audience, which means being able to sell books to an audience or being able to spread the word to a very particular audience who's interested in what you have to say. So I often talk about platform as being built of several different components, such as your online presence, which that would include your website and anything you do on social media, but also relationships you have, um, the network that you've built over time, and um, other avenues that you have to reach your audience, whether that's through traditional media, digital media, or, 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 or just influencers who that you have a good relationship with and you can kind of borrow their audience uh, in order to spread the word. Sure, sure. And so I know that you have a really strong presence both on on Twitter and on Facebook. So have you developed relationships with a lot of of writers and a lot of your current colleagues through the way a lot with social media? I have. I, I did have an advantage, it has to be said, because I worked in the traditional publishing industry for for at least a decade before I began being active online. Well, I mean, <laughs> I when I began in publishing, you know, the publishing house I worked for barely had email available. So, you know, I I went through the whole transition of going from a very uh, print-oriented job to a very digital-oriented job. So as you know, as things changed around me, I adapted and joined social media and put up a website and did all those things that are kind of, you know, those are considered baseline at this point. But at the time, it was it was very new. But in any case, I had that network of relationships before I even started on social media. But social media made me more more visible to people who weren't in my immediate circle. So it was very powerful in spreading the word beyond the people that I knew. Sure. I know you do a, a lot of speaking engagements. You go to a lot of, of writers' conferences, and uh, and I'm sure that social media has, has, has helped make those connections. So for people who are just 
starting out, they're just just building their Facebook page or their Twitter account. What what can they do to build relationships with people? Well, a lot of the cliches that you hear about this have to do with, you know, being authentic, uh, building an, a readership or an audience one person at a time, having conversations, and all of that's true. But when you talk about it in those terms, it's really hard to figure out, well, what, what does that mean on a day-to-day, like, what is it? what does that mean that I'm doing on Twitter or Facebook? What does it mean to have a relationship or a conversation with someone? And I think probably the first step for people, sometimes I think it gets missed is that you're, you're trying to show up in a way that demonstrates what you want to be known for and what you would like people to know you for. Um, So what, what you put out is generally what you get back. So if you go out and you talk a lot about politics, for instance, which is on everyone's mind right now, you're going Mm -hmm. to get politics back. But if you go out and talk about, um, let's say, let's say you're a romance author and it's set in uh, Victorian England. So if you go out there and talk about romance related topics, and you talk about Victorian England, you're going to get that reflected back at you. So I think one of the first steps for people is to kind of figure out what, what are the areas or the topics or the themes that I would really like to build awareness on around me mm-hmm. and my work and, and start talking about those things and identifying other people who love to talk about those things as well. So you don't want to be talking in a vacuum. You want to start reaching out to others who are identifiably connected with those topics. Sure. And and you say that for fiction writers and nonfiction writers, there's kind of a, a different approach. And, and I think a lot of people don't mm-hmm. don't really realize that the process is different from start to finish most of the time yeah. for nonfiction writers right. and fiction writers. So yeah. what is what is the main difference there? I feel like with nonfiction, if we're talking about stuff that's not narrative and by that, I mean, informational, how to stuff that's benefit oriented uh, uh, so things that aren't a memoir, for instance. <clears throat> so for that type of nonfiction, it's very easy to start building a platform and engaging and connecting without actually having a book or having something that's like this really formal body of work. Because if, if you can be perceived as someone who knows their stuff or, or um has a particular type of position or is a good connector, you can build a platform very readily based on that. For people who write fiction, it's kind of the reverse, at least from my perspective. I think it's very hard to build a platform for fiction until you actually have that fiction out on the market so that you have, it might not be books, but it has to be like a serialization or you might be active on Wattpad, but you can't build an audience of readers for fiction that does not yet exist. <laughs> so I think it can be sure. very hard to hard to build a platform or readership for if you're totally unpublished and you haven't put out a single word, whether that's online or in print. Well, and also you talk about the, the value of, of developing in-person relationships. You mentioned that writers' conferences, while you wouldn't think that that would be something that would be important, can be something that is extremely valuable, both from a networking mm-hmm. perspective and from a feedback perspective. And I, 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 mm-hmm. I love that you say don't ask your mom, don't ask your friend whether your writing is good or whether you should be writing this. Talk to somebody who knows the business, who knows the market. So for those who don't know, what exactly is a writing conference? So a writing conference, that they come in lots of different flavors and varieties and sizes. But generally, it's where writers go for two reasons. It's one, to increase their skill level, their knowledge base, um, whether it's on the craft or the business, and it's to meet other writers as well as professionals in the industry, whether those are agents or editors or published authors. So at these events, you're going to make connections that can be valuable for the long term of your career, whether that's meeting a writer who becomes an important critique partner or meeting an editor or agent who let's let's hope you make a good impression on and they remember you uh, in the future when you query or when something happens and you have an opportunity to have a relationship with them on a, on a professional level, rather than I'm a writer at a conference level. So that's the, I think even if you're introverted, I think there are a lot of writers are, they consider themselves introverted conferences can be an intimidating thing, but even if you feel like you're not great at starting new relationships at these events, it can be valuable just for 
shortening the learning curve of what the publishing industry is like, what how authors um, progress in their careers, and assessing where you're at in kind of the landscape of of authordom. Sure, sure. And so, so let's say an author goes to goes to a conference and 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 meets an agent or a publisher and and develops that rapport and and follows it up with a query. Um, you say that there are there are certain no nos that automatically uh, disqualify <laughs> writers uh, that the agent or publisher is just going to delete the email they receive. So, so let's talk. Tell tell us a little bit about those. Well. It, um, in case there's someone who doesn't know what a query is, I'll just briefly summarize. A, a, a query is when you send uh, basically a cold letter of some kind asking the agent or publisher to look at your manuscript or your project. And so it needs to be very concise. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they go on for a really long time trying to explain every facet of their work or their career and that, that's not wanted uh, on first contact. So usually the, the approach needs to be somewhere around 300 words, less is better. And especially if it's being sent via email, you need to get to the point very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I usually recommend having, uh, unless you have a very particular connection to that agent or editor, you have a really strong um, uh, way to personalize the query. Usually you start right off with, uh, your story premise or why your project is important. So that usually takes not more than 100 to 200 words. Because remember, the query, in my in my view, is all about seduction. It's all about getting that agent or editor to ask for more, to ask for the manuscript, to ask for a full proposal if it's nonfiction. So you don't want to spend a lot of time in the query kind of digging a hole <laughs> to right. where you say things that might be discouraging. Um, another red flag that can end up in the query letter is your word count. I find this is a problem for some novelists who just aren't aware of industry standards. So that maybe their first novel they've written, it's 200,000 words and the average right. for a first, a first book is 80,000. So when right. an agent sees that, they're going to be like, mm, no. So there's there's some things like that where you wouldn't even necessarily know you've got a red flag in your query unless you were familiar with, you know, uh, the business side. Sure, sure. And you even you have a subheading in your book. I love this. How to leave stuff out. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> fantastic because I mean, I, because we are all writers are emotionally attached to what we're mm-hmm. writing, and so yeah. a lot of times we will go into the description and go into the selling. But one yeah. large point that you make is that objectivity is something that you have to reach somehow. So, yeah. what are ways that authors can reach objectivity about their own work? Yes, having that objectivity or distance can make a real difference in how you approach someone and the effectiveness of your approach. And the best way to achieve it is letting that project or manuscript sit in a drawer for at least a little while. Some people just rush to submit that work right after they finish it, like weeks after they finish it, days after they finish it. And you haven't really let the work cool off so that you can look at it with an objective eye. Another way to gain some distance is to get feedback from people who are not family and friends, as you mentioned earlier, to try and get someone who's another writer, someone who's a little bit more objective, isn't afraid to hurt your feelings, um, and give you some criticism that would help you revise. I think the more you understand about the industry, and also the more you're reading other people in your genre, generally that can help you moderate uh, some of your expectations and, and be a little bit self-critical maybe of what you've produced. If it's the first thing you've ever produced, the first first book you've written, I think people tend to be more attached to that. It's, it's just kind of human nature. So I think once you go through that process multiple times, <laughs> once you've mm-hmm. done your second and your third, it actually helps. The longer you go, I think the more that you can create that distance yourself because you're more experienced. 
Sure, sure. And, and you talk a lot about the fact that, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. And there are a lot of people out there who have expertise in in many various aspects of, of publishing, whether it's book editing or being a publicist or, you know, getting you an agent or reviewing your query or reviewing your proposal. And that it's it's really worth putting in the investment if you if you have the funds to get that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. But you say there are also some scams. So how yeah. can people tell the difference? I think the big challenge right now for writers looking to hire freelance help is that with the rise of self-publishing and independent authorship, so many people are putting out their shingle. Some of them are wonderful and very helpful and invaluable. Others don't really have the experience and are and maybe delivering something that isn't quite up to what we would consider traditional publishing standards. So something to do is always check on an editor's background or experience on projects and make sure it matches what you're trying to accomplish with your project. Sometimes it's fine to use a new editor, someone without a lot of experience of what you're looking for is, say, a copy editor, a proofread, or something that you're just looking for someone who can do a really thorough job on a line editing level. But if you're looking for someone who can be a development or content editor, these are higher forms of editing where people are getting right into the guts of your story and pushing you to revise or even revising for you in a way that would make the work more saleable and uh, commercially appealing on the market. So for that type of experience, you're going to be paying a lot of money. And you should also see that they have a track record of working with authors who have been traditionally published. So it's the the really difficult part here is that those experienced editors, the people who have like credentials from New York publishing houses, they can charge you an arm and a leg. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, but they can't promise that you're going to get published. So there's still a lot of disappointment and a, like a trail of tears coming out of that uh, because people have expectations that are out of line. So I think it's possible for editors to make a good manuscript great. But if it's not a very good story to begin with, they're not going to be able to transform it into something that's suddenly going to you know, sell at, sell for six figures. Sure. Yeah. And, and so you, you mentioned self-publishing and, and, and people, you know, using using these consultants as a, a means toward getting getting a traditional publishing deal. Uh, what would be the reasons that someone would self-publish? There are so many reasons at this point. Uh, it's I think primarily people end up at the self-publishing door still because they can't get anywhere with agents or editors. So they've been rejected or they do not like the idea of kind of groveling at the feet of the traditional publishing uh, landscape, institution, legacy, what gatekeeper, whatever you want to call it. Um, So they, they maybe put out a tentative feeler or two, but they just don't have the patience to go through that. Um, so I, I still think that drives a lot of the self-publishing activity. Another thing that drives it is just because it's so easy comparatively and fairly inexpensive to put an ebook up on Amazon. It doesn't take a lot of skill or time to make that happen. Right. I think the, the, the better reasons for self-publishing have to do with you already reach your audience in some way, which is mostly applicable to nonfiction authors, people who are already entrepreneurial in spirit. They understand that publishing is a business and they're ready to approach it that way. Um, Some authors are in a niche or in a category that's not just very commercially viable. And so they end up self-publishing because there's just no there's nothing in the traditional landscape that would be accepting of the very narrow uh, segment that they're trying to appeal to. Sure. So not every project, you know, is cut out for national distribution. And if, and if you're going to be traditionally published, that's kind of their, that's their marker for whether or not a project is acceptable. Does this book deserve to be placed in every bookstore in the country? And, and not all books do. 
And and you said something I, I, I loved about the, the reason for writing. Are you writing for your audience or are you writing for mm-hmm. yourself? Is this yeah. a cathartic process or is this mm-hmm. something that people are going to want to read? And so the cathartic right. process, it sounds like what you were just mentioning, would be something that would definitely fall in the self-publishing realm. Yes, I think I meet a lot of authors who are writing memoirs. It's their very first writing project, and it's very important to them. They have absolutely zero distance from the project right. because it's, it's their life story. Right. And, and part of their motivation may, in fact, be to leave this story for family and friends as, as a kind of legacy. And so a lot of these projects, unfortunately, just aren't suitable for traditional publishing, and, but it doesn't mean they ought not ever reach the market. You can self-publish them, make them available, um, and and be very satisfied with that. So, yes, absolutely. I think that people who are writing f- for cathartic reasons, for very personal reasons, um, they shouldn't automatically go the agent or traditional publishing path. And so for those who are hell-bent on getting a traditional publishing deal, will, willing to send hundreds of thousands of queries <laughs> if necessary, um, what should someone look for in an agent? I would say there are two main things. One, you want to make sure you are approaching agents who have a track record of selling what you've got. So you you don't want to be knocking on the doors of agencies where let's say you've got a romance and they specialize in selling literary fiction. That's, that's a really bad fit and you shouldn't go there. However, some people kind of take a like, let's throw it, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach with their query process. Um, <laughs> but that just, that just wastes people time and it, and you're going to be unhappy if, if you have an agent who doesn't really get your genre or category or doesn't, Um, have respect and enthusiasm for what you're trying to do, which brings us to the issue of chemistry. And a lot of people compare the author agent relationship to a marriage and you're choosing a marriage partner. Well, I I don't know if it's that, you know, um, (laughs) I don't know if it's quite (laughs) like that, but it is true in the sense that you need to trust this person. You don't want to be, uh, you don't want to sign a contract with an agent and then six months in or a year in be like, well, I don't, I actually don't like this person or I, I don't really believe that they're treating me the way I think I ought to be treated. Or although I have to say some authors are very needy and have strange expectations about how they ought to be treated. But if you're, <laughs> if you're the average person, you know, you want to make sure that this, the agent basically makes you feel good at the end of a phone call rather than depressed or more anxious. It should be a positive relationship, not one that brings you down. And so people should, as a whole, uh, unless the publisher has advertised that they accept unsolicited manuscripts, uh, should people assume that they need to use an agent to get to the publishing houses? Yes, for for anything that's a New York publishing deal, like a Big Five, Penguin, Random House, HarperCollins type of deal, nearly all of those publishers are not going to accept your material unless it's from an agent. If you're looking at smaller publishers, you know, publishers outside of New York, smaller presses, academic presses, sometimes they do accept material directly from authors. And in that case, you don't need an agent. But I think that a lot of authors, even if they do end up getting a small press contract, then kind of end back right up, you know, with this question of, well, should I get an agent to help me negotiate the contract? Uh, Because, you know, it's I don't recommend any author sign a contract that they're just handed. They really do need to look look at it carefully. And most authors are not schooled in publishing contract language and you need to do something to help you evaluate the offer. Sure, sure. And yeah, one thing that that really stood out to me as I was going through your pages is that there's a lot of left brain activity that is required uh, Mm -hmm. in order to get a book published. And I think a lot of writers romanticize it. They picture Snoopy with his typewriter on top of his doghouse, you know, and it's all this very dark and stormy night. Um, (laughs) But there's a lot of 
planning that that goes into it uh, and a lot of forethought at every single step. And sometimes yeah. it, it sounds like, especially with nonfiction, uh, it, it, there are so many steps before you even get to the writing part um, that you, mm-hmm. you've already done hundreds of hours of work. And so yeah. in preparing to send to agents, what is the difference between what a fiction writer should send and a nonfiction writer should send? With fiction writers, you want to have a completed manuscript. So like a beginning to end polished novel that you feel like you can't make any better. Like you've done as much as you can and you don't see any way to improve it. That's the appropriate time to approach an agent with it. Mm-hmm. Nonfiction is totally the reverse. Uh, you want to be, rather than writing the manuscript, you want to be researching the market for it, understanding the competition, looking at other authors, and then developing what's called a book proposal. That's an argument for why your book should exist and why you should write it in the first place. And that's what you send to the agent. So you're really pitching an idea or a concept or an argument for a book rather than writing it and sending it in. It doesn't mean that you can't write the book first as a nonfiction author, but that doesn't mean you uh, are off the hook on the proposal. You still have to write the book proposal. It's a business plan, essentially, for your sure. for why your book should exist. And it includes information about the target market and the competitive titles and your marketing plan. Whereas with if you're a novelist, and there's a lot of confusion on this point, so I, I want to make it clear, if, if you're writing fiction, you do not have to talk about the marketing of the book in your query or in your pitch to agents. They're really just interested in the story. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I think there's a lot of confusion because nonfiction authors do, in fact, have to talk about marketing concerns. And that that's where the that's where the platform comes in, and that is mm-hmm. where um, most definitely and and a lot of people question, uh, you know, whether they self publish or or whether they go with a, a small publisher or one of the big publishing houses in New York, that they're going to be doing a lot of the marketing of their book, uh, mm-hmm. and they expect that the, that the publisher is going to be doing it. But it, a lot of it really falls on the author, whether mm-hmm. it's fiction or nonfiction, and, and no matter who's publishing it. So tell me a little bit about the reasoning behind that. So I, I, I hear a lot of authors say, why would I ever traditionally publish if all of the marketing burden is on me, um, regardless of, of ha- what happens? And the best metaphor I could use is let's say you're running a race. And if you're traditionally publishing, you run the race in like your normal workout clothes. If you're self-publishing, you're running the race with 20 pound weights on your ankles. (laughs) So it's, (laughs) it's with traditional publishing, things just happen a little bit easier for you. So all of the marketing that you might attempt to do, whether that's getting a book tour together, getting bookstores to host you, getting the traditional media to answer your emails or your calls, uh, getting book reviews, all of that happens much more easily if you have a traditional publisher's support and imprint and, and um, you know, they're vouching for you essentially. And, and they're going to do some of that work themselves and then you're going to complement what they do. If you self-publish, you don't have anyone vouching for you. You have no one saying that, yes, we believe in this work and we're investing in it. So, you know, every step of the way you have to prove that you're worth someone's time and that gets exhausting and you have to do it again and again and again. And there are certain things you just are never going to be able to accomplish initially, like getting nationwide distribution in bookstores. It's just not going to happen for a self-published author. And that means there are certain marketing opportunities that are not available to you doesn't mean that you can't put on a terrific marketing campaign digitally. um, But there are just certain things that you, that that certain doors are closed from the very beginning. Sure. And you say that publishers can also push the work itself toward excellence can, can make the book a better book because of the people that they have on staff and the input that they provide. So what kind of services does a publisher provide uh, that, that really helps to, to push the book along to make it the best it can be. 
Publishers are expert at packaging, and I mean they've been in the business for you know more than a hundred years at this point. The bi- the big ones have been in the business right. a long time. They understand what sells in a traditional print environment. Now it may be that your work is not ideally marketed in that traditional environment, but for those authors who are doing, particularly who are doing literary fiction or mainstream fiction of any kind, you know. Still, I would argue 30 to 50% of your sales, if not more, are going to be in those traditional environments. So it, the publishers really understand the pricing and the cover design and the packaging and, and the look and the feel of it and, and the timing and how to make sure that it's pitched to the bookstores in a way that it will hopefully get on display or be promoted um, in conjunction with certain holidays or what, whatever. So they, they just understand that uh, there's like a, both the technical understanding as well as the gut intuition. And I think if you're an author who has never before published, you're totally new to the business. Uh, it's really, it's hard to gain that kind of experience in just, you know, a very short window of time. And what you end up doing is paying a lot of other people or just guessing in order to get it right. Sure, sure. And you, um, you, you put a lot of advice into your book, actually writing advice on, on blog posts and bios and, and things like that, that you're, that you're setting up your own, your own background to sell yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, either before the book is published to an agent or after it's published to readers. So Mm -hmm. what is the importance of a blog? Why is it really necessary for writers to have that? Well, I would say the the most important thing is to, at the very least, have a website. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like your business card online that's working for you 24-7. It's kind of a requirement of doing business as an author once you're published. And so the website, I think, that, that lays the groundwork. For some authors, blogging is then the the plank that goes on top of the website where you're putting out content information or you're engaging readers in some way uh, during the book launch or in between books. I don't think blogging is necessarily a must do or a must have thing for your website. It, it kind of depends on the author. I think it tends to be more important for nonfiction, less important for novelists, mm-hmm. but you do need to find a way to be visible both during the launch and in between books. And I think a lot of that attention has now gone to social media, like in the form of Facebook. Um, and, and there are other places that people do this, whether that's at Goodreads or Instagram. But just, I think you don't want to totally disappear off the map in between books. You want to try and, and stay in front of people's eyes as best as you can so that they're more ready to think about you when Um, they're trying to recommend a book or they're thinking about what's next on the nightstand or they're trying to think of who they're going to invite to their next event. It's, it's just, it's the visibility issue for me when it comes to whether that's blogging or social media. Sure. And, and, and I had a super huge aha moment while I was reading this, but because you talk about making everything accessible to everything else, as far as your social media, your website, if you have a blog and my, my website and my blog are hosted in separate places. And, and I, and in reading (laughs) your book, I was like, I need to move my blog to my website because, you know, if you've connected with one person on Twitter, you want them to be able to find you on Facebook. And you also talk about email lists. And a lot of people think that that's a thing of the past, but you say it is a a really current marketing tool that is very useful. Yes. It, it's so much more effective for selling specifically. Mm -hmm. So it's, and actually it's a bad cliche that's, you know, social media doesn't work to sell books. It's, it's true to a point. Like if you go on Twitter, if you go on Facebook and try to say, buy my book, it largely isn't effective unless you're only doing it say once or twice for a book launch. So if you keep repeating that message again and again and again, people will tune you out or block you or unfollow or whatever. Right. With an email list, however, 
assuming that these are people who are more invested, if they gave you their email address, they probably are more invested. They're probably more your loyal readers or your fans, and they don't mind hearing from you. They don't mind being told, I've got a new book or a new offering or this event or whatever it happens to be. They're, they're like, they're on board and they're, they want to be notified when something's happening. So you don't have the, the drop-off rate or the disinterest on an email list as you do on social media. That's assuming, though, that you've built your email list in a way that's you know, genuine, that you haven't you know, just added people who probably have no interest at all in your work, which that does happen. You shouldn't do that. Um, sure. But if, it's re- if it's readers of your work, then you can have some confidence that they're going to be very interested in the messages you have to send, whether they're about selling or something else. And you say that there are so many analytic tools now that let you know uh, in in real time almost what is effective Mm -hmm. and what isn't effective that you're doing that you can kind of teach yourself as you go. You say Google Analytics is uh, is Mm -hmm. one of the one of the best for websites. So what can what can people do using that? As soon as you have a website up, you do want to install Google Analytics. It's totally free. It's not complicated to add it to your site, and it will start tracking all of the people who visit it, where they go, how much time they spend, how they arrived at your site. And so having this information helps you make better decisions about where to spend your time and what to focus on. If you see from your Google Analytics that 90% of your traffic is coming from Facebook, then, but, you know, 0.01% of your traffic is coming from Twitter, uh, but you're spending 90% of your time on Twitter, you know that there's like a mismatch here in how you should be spending your time. If most of your, um, maybe most of your effort should be spent on where people are actually engaging and where you're having the most success. So it helps you determine from a social media perspective where your efforts are paying off, but it also tells you where people are spending time on your site Especially if you're blogging, I think you, it's almost impossible to make decisions that are strategic without seeing what posts or articles or content people are spending time with, because then that guides future decisions on what new stuff to prepare. And this, uh, it, it, it's amazing because there's just so much that goes on with writing in addition to the actual writing. It's it's almost a little bit overwhelming to to think about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. So let's get back to to the actual to the actual writing away from the business <laughs> for a second. So let's say somebody gets you know they they've been writing the book and then they 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 read your book and they they hear all of these things they need to do. So they set it up and and they've spent so much time setting this up and managing it that they they forget about writing the book. So how can people uh, inspire themselves to 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 get back into that creative process when they're kind of going back and forth between left and right brain? Yeah. There there are a couple strategies that I recommend for people. One is an on-cycle, off-cycle strategy. I think this works really well for anyone doing fiction or narratives like memoir, where you're go- you're probably going to focus initially 80 to 90 percent of your time on writing and becoming better as a writer, as, as someone who crafts stories. And so I, I think your time should be fairly limited when you look at the platform building or the digital media. And it's that those activities should be pursued mainly just to kind of stay in the loop, to to be aware of what's happening with other writers and in the publishing industry and to not totally drop off the map in terms of current events and, and other people who might be interesting or important to you over the long term. Sure. So you, you might only, and by on and off cycle, I mean, you're, you're kind of on digital media, maybe only during really critical points uh, related to spreading word of mouth about a particular project. So until the point or, or until the time that you're published, like your first book comes out, there's not a whole lot, that you need to do or would be expected to do in terms of digital media, website building, blogging, whatever. I have a really great example to kind of prove the point here. A colleague of mine who is the editor of Writer's Digest magazine, Jessica Strauser, uh, I've worked with her for many years. We uh, like going back to 2001 Mm -hmm. and she's, 
you know, throughout her career, she's, she's done a lot of different things, but now while she's editor of writer's digest magazine, she is about to have her first debut novel come out in the spring of 2017. But even though she's active in publishing, she had never started a Facebook account ever. She didn't even have a personal profile. She did have something of a Twitter presence, but it wasn't like a big Twitter presence. It was like more casual observing Twitter presence. And she didn't blog. So like I would say that she was average in terms of her digital presence when you look at how most authors start. Right. As soon as the book deal was signed and the book was actually happening. Um, She then started a Facebook profile. She started a Facebook business page. She got a website up, which she had never had before. She started contributing to the Writer's Digest blog. And so, but she has like, I think there was maybe 18 months between the time the book was signed and now when her book's going to come out. So 18 months is more than enough time for her to start ramping up. And so that's what I call the on cycle. She's now paying attention to this visibility issue. So that's that's the one strategy I recommend for people who, especially those working on narratives, novels and memoirs. And I think the other strategy, um, which is, this is my strategy, just because I, I like digital media. I, uh, it's uh, blogging and doing other things online. That's part of how I generate content to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that really suits some people. And so then it's really a matter of scheduling your days or your weeks or your months to focus on very particular projects and making sure that you're setting aside, you know, three to four hour blocks to generate your content wherever that might go. And then you can use, this one hour in the morning or the one hour in the afternoon to manage the digital life that you have. I think that's one of the keys is being able to, (laughs) to have those blocks of time where you decide I'm not going to be distracted during this time by whatever it is. I'm just going to focus on creation. Sure. To find balance. Now your, your website, you have 150,000 people every month come to your website. So tell the listeners, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, tell them everything that, that you do on your site. Well, my website, is that's my home base for everything that I do publish, create, promote, and market. And most people end up at my site because of the content on my blog. So I have a lot of 101 posts about how to get published traditionally, as well as how to self-publish, how to market and promote. Sometimes people end up there because of social media. They see links and they click on them. Other people end up there because of search, like they're searching for how to do something and they find my site. But my site also has information um, about my background and other services I offer. So I have editing and critique services um, and, and consulting services. And I also have online courses that are part of my site. So I offer um teaching or learning opportunities from both myself as well as people I trust to teach writers. That's excellent. I mean, it really is your, your website is, is such an amazing resource. Uh, and I mean, anybody just out there, I, I just, just for fun, I took one of your online courses. I think it was a couple of years ago. I don't even uh, remember what the platform was, but it was, it was, it was a, you know, one of those like two night things and all yeah. my stars, I was, I was so impressed. I was so impressed. So anyone out there, if you go to her site and if you see her advertising a class, it's absolutely the knowledge. Knowledge that that Jane Friedman can bring to the life of a writer is, I think, it's unrivaled. I, I really do. Between your classes and your and, and your book and, and everything that you do on your blog, but on your blog you also highlight uh, some other people's writing. So, oh, how right, do you yeah. decide? How do you decide what you're going to to highlight? Well, I, I would say, and <laughs> when it comes to the guests, uh, it's. It's mainly based on the people I already know or I have seen visible in the community. And my approach, to be perfectly honest, is fairly passive. So I don't necessarily go out in search of people to contribute. They tend to find me. Um, Well, sure. And so then I work with them to figure out what 
what it is that they could best contribute to my site. Um, what is it they have expertise or experience in, and, and what is it that's going to be informational or most valuable to my readership? And so then we work through the topic, and then we go through an editing process, and then the post goes up. So I don't – a lot of bloggers, the, the people who I would consider my colleagues in this space, like Joel Friedlander or Joanna Penn, for instance, I think they have much more structured and strategic blogging schedules, you know, with something every day of the week. And I'm, I'm very loose. So I just kind of, every day is, is something a little bit different. And I may not have a post every day. It just depends on who's interested in contributing. And if I have, if I feel I have something new to post myself. Right. Well, you have, I mean, you've got a level of visibility that, that most people don't have. I mean, having been the former publisher of Writer's Digest, uh, most people are going to know who you are. And if they don't, they're going to find out pretty quickly. So so let's talk a little bit about how how you came to get all of this knowledge. How did you follow this career path? I know you, you studied writing in uh, in college. What took you, how did you go from that to being the publisher of Writer's Digest? Well, part of it was luck. Um, and the rest of it was probably persistence and patience. I went straight from college into a job in publishing. Um, part of that was because I got an internship at the company. I eventually worked at full time, the corporate parent of Writer's Digest. I didn't start working immediately for Writer's Digest. I worked for another uh, division of the company that was focused on uh, fine arts and crafts publishing. So that's where I got my beginnings. And then I transitioned over to Writer's Digest magazine and then over to books and then eventually uh, became the publisher overseeing it all. And you know, the, the company went through some really interesting changes during my tenure. Like I, I mentioned earlier that the print to digital transition, so much in publishing was changing throughout the 2000s. And I think my view was one that was very holistic, where I saw that the different areas of Writer's Digest, the books, the magazine, the events, the online education, um, the direct marketing, and the book club, I saw that all of these things really needed to be put into one community, uh -huh. uh, overseen by a single person. And that's not how it was when I first started with the company. These were all siloed divisions ah, and they didn't yeah. they didn't talk to one another so the magazine didn't know what the books were doing they didn't know what the education division was doing and so eventually on a corporate level they decided this was this was nonsense it all needed to be the company needed to be structured based on readership and who the audience was for the content rather than the format of the content so that's ultimately how I ended up becoming the publisher of Writer's Digest was because when that change was made, I was one of the most senior people in the Writer's Digest area. And so I had I had experience also with the most uh, – I had experience on both magazines and books, so it made sense to have me oversee both. Most definitely, yes. You, um, I mean, your 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 experience has you have a lot of fingers going in a lot of different directions, and that's just so. Um, I think that's what makes you uh, what what makes this book so. Uh, I would say invaluable to to any first time writer because you you know so much about every aspect of the writing and the publishing. So from the publisher side, put your publisher hat on for a minute. What it, somebody's going to give you a book and you're going to publish it, what do you want? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, even after spending many years in publishing, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I think that uh, maybe I could boil it down to three things. The first thing I'm looking for is a topic that I know the audience is interested in. Like there's no doubt in my mind that the book is addressing an issue or it's about a theme or category that I, I already know there's demonstrated interest in this or there, it's a hot button issue. Then I'm also looking at, well, does it, does it attack this issue or topic 
in a way that hasn't that isn't like everything else like there has to be a, a something fresh about it or an angle to it that doesn't feel like everything else I've already seen I don't want to be bored by it I want to be invigorated or curious or see something about it that um, just you know is inspiring and then the last piece usually has to do with the author. Do I, do I, do I feel like this person is going to be trustworthy and engaging and an interesting person in the community to help market and promote this book? Do I feel like they have the authority uh, and the credibility with the audience in order to pull it off? So that's, that's the, that's the meat of it, that those are the, the three main, main components. And it's, you know, people have to, to really work to, to learn how to present themselves and to create work and present their work uh, that a publisher and or an agent is going to look at and say, I want this book, I'm going to, because there's so much out there, especially with self-publishing, mm -hmm. that it's really hard to do something new. I mean, how often do you come across a brand new idea that you've never heard of? <laughs> well, it's pretty rare, but I, I will say that, you know, it, it's a cliche. You know, every person is different. Um, everyone has a story to tell. But, you know, everyone has their own lens or perspective on the world. And so when you're looking at a book idea, even if it is something like you've, you've seen a million books on this topic or on this theme, you've seen a million stories like this, but this particular voice or this particular perspective or this, this lens is just really, um, it, it, there are different words that people use. It's very sexy. It's very, it, it infatuates you. It obsesses you. It delights you. It's inspiring. There are lots of different ways to put it, but ultimately it just sparks something where you feel like, yeah, this is, this is something I want to champion. That's excellent. And, and, and so many agents have a different perspective as to what does resonate deeply <laughs> within them that you say, don't give up, you know, just keep, yeah. keep sending it out because you never know when someone's going to connect with, with what you've got. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. Jane, I cannot thank you enough for being my guest tonight and for offering this advice to my listeners. It, it's, it's, it's great advice. And I hope that everyone goes out and, and gets your book. How can they how can they contact you? What is your website? What's the best way to get mm -hmm. you? Yeah, I'm at janefriedman.com, and you can find information about my book, Publishing 101, there. I also do an email newsletter for authors. It's a paid subscription newsletter called The Hot Sheet, which I started because so many people were like, how do I stay up to date on important developments in publishing? Like, how do I make sense of what's happening? Because there's so much change people feel overwhelmed. So you can find information about the hot sheet at my website as well. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out. It's, it's, it's good to talk to you. And, um, and I, I, I look forward to seeing all of the updates that you put out up there because it's always, you are the, uh, in my mind anyway, the, the utmost expert in, in all things publishing. Maybe I'm partial because I'm just down the road <laughs> in Richmond, but I am, uh, but I am, I'm always excited to see, to see your posts and to, to see what's happening in your world. So have a, a, a wonderful evening and, and thank you again. Thank you. My pleasure, Shannon. And for The Authentic Woman on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is your host, Shannon Fisher. See you next time.